All right, well, good evening. My name's uh, Pastor Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Neighborhood Church, and we're going to continue tonight in our series entitled Small Book, Big Ideas, Knowing What We Need to Know from the Book of 1 John. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're not going to go there quite yet, but you could open it up to 1 John chapter 2. Last week, we talked a bit about spiritual maturity and growth and just the different levels that each of us finds ourselves at in our Christian walk. And tonight we're going to look at something I think a little more cut and dry, a little more black and white if I could say it like that. Um, it's a strong portion of scripture that we're going to be peeking at tonight. And so we'll get there soon. But before that, allow me just to kind of illustrate how sometimes we can have two radically different understandings in our lives of how you once saw things this way, but now you see things that way. I'm sure we could all relate to this to an extent. Let me start all the way at the beginning with the printing press, okay? Back in the day when none of us lived, up until the printing press was invented, things were mainly communicated by word of mouth, and what you knew was actually quite limited. You didn't know much about what was happening more than a few hundred miles away, if you even knew that, because there was no newspaper. There was no news. Uh, words were communicated by people going to other people. And so um, what you found out about, what you were informed about was a lot more limited than what it is today because you relied on people to carry the news and messages and to communicate with one another. And what this actually did among the people who lived in this day is it built a strong sense of tribal community. And as reading and writing was available to more and more people, the community was no longer needed to retain teachings and training and identity. But people spent more time in private, and the isolation that naturally followed really created the conditions necessary for a strong sense of individualism to emerge. And this is why we started learning on our own. I'd rather just read a book. I'd rather just look at this on my own. Before that, it was with the community. At this point, there was a radically new understanding, and people learned on their own. And so we found that printing, which was invented so that more people would have access to information and grow in their learning skills, it was a good thing, but it also transformed how people lived and the effects are very present among us today. It was a paradigm shift to be sure, it was a new way of understanding life. And then we fast-tracked it with the invention of the internet. How many of you remember when this first came out, anyone? Uh, remember how slow that dial-up was to get on? Like, my gosh, right? Like, how did we ever manage, okay? Um, but now you had all the information that you ever wanted at the control of a mouse, a keyboard, and a monitor. You no longer really needed to even read that much because the internet was quicker, and as high speeds came about, you were able to find things faster. Now, the internet, I'm going to argue, changed the way we research things, how we communicate with each other, and uh, probably where we spend a lot of our time, if I could say it like that. Uh, one more invention that perhaps wasn't as mind-blowing, but we're seeing its effects today, was the cell phone, right? Look at this group hangout. Man, are they communicating with one another, right? I bet you they're texting each other while they're standing there, right? But, uh, you know, the cell phone was one thing in and of itself to phone people, but the text message was a whole nother thing. You know, this idea, you mean I actually have to talk to people sometimes? You know, I have friends who are actually genuinely annoyed when I text them. And, I'm oh, sorry, when I phone them. They'd rather me text them. 
And so what do I do because I'm a good friend? I phone them as much as I can, right? I, I definitely try to get them to chat with me a bit more. But it's amazing to think how people once saw the world compared to how we now today see the world. It would be more difficult to live during one of these changes because the more you got used to something, I think the harder it is to let that go and embrace a new understanding. And I say all of this to bring us to our text today in 1 John chapter 2. We must always remember that the people of Jesus' day and the days that the scriptures were written in, they had their systems, they had their traditions, they had their customs and ideas of what religion looked like, of what following God looked like, of what successful people looked like, of what true power was like. And Jesus arrived on the scene not to embrace their understanding, not to embrace their way, but to challenge it and to critique it, and in many ways to call it out, and to offer a whole new way of seeing things, a new way of living, a new way of following God and treating each other, and perhaps a new set of priorities along with that. And he offers us a new kingdom to live in and under, and we call it the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom is in direct opposition to the kingdom of this world. And so with that in mind, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, let's read. It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And so we're being told here by the writer in John, don't love the world. And so what does world mean? We've got to figure that out first, okay? Now when he's saying world, let me say this. He isn't referring to the created universe, that when God was done creating all the beautiful parts of the world, he said this is good. John isn't telling us to hate the mountains, okay? He's not saying hate the forests or don't love the forests or don't love the lakes or don't love the fields. Enjoy the outdoors, you outdoor enthusiasts, okay? And the rest of us will enjoy our living rooms and our basements, okay? But in this passage, he's not referring to the created world. And so we must recognize that that is not what the writer is telling us. And another thing that the writer isn't telling us we must recognize that God is certainly not telling us to hate the people of this world. You see, John 3.16, one of the more famous scriptures of the mall, says, you know, for God so loved, I heard someone say it, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. You see, I remember once having a lady in a previous ministry setting stopped by my office to chat and she went on and on and on and on to me about somebody who was giving her a hard time. And at the end of the conversation, I asked her, well, how are you trying to love this person and pray for them during this time where they're giving you a difficult, uh, you know, moment? And then she went on to tell me that, no, nope, no, nope, this person's in the world. Um, no need to bother with that. Um, they're, they're lost, so, you know, um, no need to please those people. You know, I'm, I'm not really worried about that right now. And I kindly, I think I, I think I was kind. I was pretty young, so I probably was at that point. But I tried to inform her that, you know, we still need to love all the people in the world, even those who are presently annoying us. 
And I think we prayed together at the end of our chat and she left my office that day. I never seen her again. I don't know if she didn't like the advice I gave her or if that's not really what she was looking for. But I fear that sometimes we can use the scriptures to twist our own preferences if we're not careful. In this case, the term world is not referring to the created order or to the creation as in people. God called the creation he made good. God loves the people of the world with a love that we can't even comprehend. And so let's not even discuss that. One more thing about the world that this isn't referring to is that this passage isn't insisting that we leave the world either. It's not saying that we run off into caves or into our hidden shelters or into monasteries. In John chapter 17, when Jesus was praying for the disciples, he prayed this, and it says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And so John isn't writing us to instruct us to avoid or hide away from the world around us. This isn't just some retreat effort so that we'll go be about our own things and keep ourselves from all the people around us. It's not what he's saying here. But what we're looking at here in this passage is what theologians and scholars call the system of this world the kingdom of this world, and that is in opposition to the values and principles of the kingdom of heaven. You see, in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is king, and the ethic and driving force of this kingdom is that we would love and serve other people. You see, the world, or the kingdom of the world that we speak of here in 1 John 2, is in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. And rather than loving and serving others as its values, we are encouraged to love and serve ourselves. We put ourselves as number one. We put ourselves at the top of the list. And so John writes to us, and he says, don't love that world. That world whose value system contradicts the kingdom of God that draws upon and preys upon your vulnerabilities and weaknesses, the things that draw you away from God. Don't love that world. Don't love the things of that world. Why? Well, because it's not worthy of your love. And secondly, because it's not going to last. You see, according to the scriptures, there's only one true love and it emanates from the heart of God. Jesus in John chapter 15 said, just as the Father has loved me, so also have I loved you. And so if God's love for you and I is true love, then what does distorted love look like? I think verse 16 gives us an answer into that. You see, there are two entities, the, 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 the Father and the world are in opposition. We can't love them both, but we have to choose one over the other. One choice leads to ruin, and the other choice leads to life. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus said it like this. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. In, the, in this case, you cannot serve both God and money. And so there's a choice that we have to make in following God. 
And we have to be careful because the world will demand our attention. It will call out for our loyalty. Everywhere you look, you can find ways to be distracted or disoriented in your pursuits. How many of you get distracted throughout the week? Anyone? Okay, a few of us are honest. Thank you. Love it. And sometimes the pull of the world, I think, is strong. And we can start loving things that don't even deserve our love. That aren't even worthy of that. And so the question needs to be asked, why is it so hard not to love the world? And I think John gives us three reasons. He says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so let's look at these three things here um, quickly and break each of them down. Number one, the lust of the flesh. This is physical needs that you have that aren't intrinsically bad in and of themselves, okay? This is that built-in part of your body to express itself in certain ways. Um, that built-in part of your body to express yourself sexually can lead to an unhealthy sexuality. That need for rest, we each have a part within us that needs to rest at times if in itself, it, it is good, but that also can turn to laziness. Um, the responsibility to provide, it's natural, it's desirable, but if we're not careful, it could turn into something like being greedy or hoarding. You see, good things can become God things if we are not careful. We can develop unhealthy attachments to them. And so the lust and desires of the flesh, many immediately when they hear that word lust, they think sexuality. And it is in part that, but this speaks of dealing with the drive for satisfaction and just to please yourself instantly. And so what this is, is placing that drive for satisfaction as the ultimate thing and desire of our lives. Is that what Jesus said? Did Jesus say that the most important thing is to make sure that you are always satisfied and happy and have everything you ever needed? You see, the lust of the flesh is about placing my desires for satisfaction above anything, anyone, and even sometimes above the heart of God. So we have the lust of the flesh. Secondly, the lust of the eyes. You see, this is talking about the stuff that you don't have, okay? Does this world exist, yes or no, with things that glitter or clam for our affection? I think it does. Um, do you ever see something and think, I need that? Um, does a new iPhone reveal feel a little bit too much like Christmas morning to you, okay? Just a little too excited about that when they're revealing a new product. You know, in a lot of ways, I think we have to watch our eyes because the eyes are really a window into our hearts. And the eyes um, are really a window into our heart. And what our eyes do is they allow our heart to see the stuff that it may want. And in many cases, it shouldn't want. And so this category, again, can have to do with lust and sexual lust. But it can also very much have to do with possessions and other things that we desire as well. And if your eyes are drawn towards things that God doesn't necessarily want you drawn towards... Thank you, sir. I don't know what that was about, but I'm going to accept it, okay? 
then you are not where God wants you to be. If your eyes are drawn after possessions or things that others have, and you obsess over having, the scriptures refer to this as idolatry and coveting. Okay? And the advertising and messaging of our world, I think, really thrives on this, doesn't it? It's really all about you. Uh, I remember reading a book on advertising. Probably, it was, it's been a while now, six, seven years. But in that book, they talked about what they called the U-cell. And the idea is, is to get the customer to think that this is something that they need. That when they get it, it will make them better. And so it shouldn't surprise any of us that the culture in which we live in encourages us to look out for ourselves. And what's often not as overtly communicated is that sometimes in doing so, others are hurt or stepped over or suffer sometimes in the process. Just think about the messages that are used to sell products, for example. Here are a few advertisements and slogans from some major companies um, right now that come at us. Burger King tells you to have it your way. YouTube says to broadcast yourself. Visa says it's everywhere you want to be. Philips, innovation in you. Air Canada, your world awaits. Pure One Imports, this is me. I don't think you have to look far in culture to be encouraged that what really matters is you, your comfort, your happiness, your success, your way, if you will. And the trouble with the message that culture gives us here is that it often clashes with the culture of the kingdom of heaven and what Jesus established. You see, our world we live in thrives on the messaging that here is something that you do not have. And if you have it, if you are able to obtain it, then you'll be happy. Then you will be complete. And if you just had this, then your life would be complete. And you'd look like all these other happy people in these commercials, right? And even worse, go after something, go after someone, go after something that isn't yours, and you'll be happy, fulfilled, and complete. And Jesus says, I want you to be content with what I've given you. In Luke 12, he said this, he said, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And we all have things that if we aren't careful, we can allow them to entice us, and we can start to love them more than we think. You know, think about it. Think about any time you go to a store, you know, that entertainment center. When I see a TV that has six screens on it, that I can watch six different games at once, okay? Sometimes that can entice me. Maybe it's a beautiful cabin. Maybe you just love views and you're just like, oh, I just need to have a place where I can oversee that lake every single day. Um, look at the SUV that Fred just bought. You know, I'm going to buy that one. But not only that, I'm going to get the deluxe model, right? And show them how it really looks to drive one of these. But eventually you begin to covet, you get disgruntled in the process, and even can get disgruntled towards God. How many of you ever thought stuff like this before? God, why don't I have a vehicle like that? God, why don't I have a house like that? Why don't I have a TV or a job like that, or that wife, or that husband? And the world preys upon your eyes because in a lot of ways your eyes are a window to your heart. And our hearts are incredibly vulnerable to want things that don't belong to us. 
This is why the scriptures say this in Proverbs chapter 4. It says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. You see, the lust of the eyes isn't just a problem with the eyes. It's very much a problem with the condition of our hearts. Finally, we talk about the pride of life. Now, the pride of life has everything to do with how this broken world and system works. It's this idea of keeping score according to what you can achieve and possess and to be above everyone else. It's this false thought that if I achieve things that others don't achieve and if I have possessions that others can't possess, then somehow or some way I'm also better than them. That's what the pride of life does to us. That's how the pride of life leads us and God can't stand this kind of thinking. But we live in a world of competition, don't we? And some of us are so vulnerable to the pride of life. We build our lives around achievement or attaining things, thinking that somehow you're always competing with other people and somehow thinking that winning that competition will be fulfilling in ways that it can never be. It never will be. In fact, it might be the absolute most empty victory that you'll ever experience because once you win that victory, you're going to go on to something else and it's never going to be enough because it can't fulfill you. It's not really what you need. You see, this can even happen, I hate to say it, even in doing good things sometimes, even in doing um, ministry things sometimes. I, I, I knew someone who worked um, in various parts of the world with people and uh, they found themselves once working with someone and, and helping them out and providing food for them, taking care for them, taking care of them, sorry. And as they were ministering to them, they said it was crazy some of the thoughts that came over their minds. They started thinking things like, well, if only you worked as hard as I worked, you'd have more things. Or if only you made better decisions like I made, then you wouldn't need my help right now. But the truth for the Christ follower is that God would say to us is that you don't have anything that doesn't come from me being God. Amen? How dare you look down on anyone else because I have been generous to you. You see, the pride of life can be downright ugly at times. And it's subtle. And, you know, we can mistake it for good, <laughs> in fact, which is terrible for us and doesn't help us in our growth. You see, verse 16 in, in 1 John chapter 2 tells us that three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come via the world, the kingdom of this world, and not the Father. And all these things, the lust and the desires will not last, but they'll pass away. But whoever does the will of God, whoever does the work of the kingdom lives forever and that work endures. And so do not love the world. Do not love the things of this world. Why? Well, first of all, because it's not real love. It's more about the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life than it is from God. Because the world is in direct opposition with God and you cannot love the things and ways of the world and love God in your heart because they're in opposition with each other. Like Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. And also, don't love the things of the world because it doesn't really last. You see, the world always over-promises and under-delivers. 
Scriptures say the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does God's will lives forever. And so let's be careful not to have our eyes and hearts set on, set on all these things around us, distracted on all these things around us, when pleasing God, walking with Him, that's our priority. That's most important. You see, each of us is given things that we can use to invest wisely. Each of us is given time, talents, and treasures in different ways. And we have the opportunity with our time, talent, and treasures to fully invest into the things that are eternal, into things that last. Or we can pour ourselves into things that are temporary and into things that are passing away. The choice is ours. One way leads to ruin. One way leads to life. And according to scriptures, three things are eternal. God's eternal, people are eternal, and his word is eternal. And you can take your time, treasure, talent, and invest them into something eternal that will last forever. Or you can invest in things that simply pass away. And so what will you do? I think reading this scripture, it's a tough scripture to read. I think some of us need to take a deep look into what we invest in. I think we need to ask ourselves questions sometimes like, what do you prioritize? What seems to have your attention most in life? What gets you angry? That's a good one, eh? What is it that if it gets taken away from you, you just get angry really, 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 really quick? What is that? You see, Jesus offers us the chance to invest our time and our talent and our treasures into things that will last and that will never be taken away. And this is where the text confronts us. And it's not the most feel-good message out there, but the text asks us, what kingdom are we pursuing? What kingdom are we most familiar with? What kingdom are we closest with? You see, is it the kingdom of heaven or is it the kingdom of this world? You see, Jesus is the true light, amen? And the light shines in even the darkest places. You know, I think about Jesus, and I think about one of his disciples, Judas, and how different they were, and how different their outcomes were, and how different their stories ended, because Judas became intimate with the kingdom of the world, money, power, authority. The values of the world became his own, and somehow in the middle of that, he lost the meaning of life and what, was, what really mattered. And Jesus became intimate with his father, and the values of that kingdom became his own, and he sacrificed, and he loved, and he served, and he found what really mattered in life. And so what kingdom are we pursuing? We need to ask ourselves this, because if you pursue the kingdom of the world, you'll reap the results of that pursuit. And the, the truth of the matter is, is that it's never enough. It never actually satisfies. If you value money the most, you'll always crave more and never have enough. If you value power, you'll always feel small and weak and insignificant until you can just get that position or that place of authority. You'll never really feel like you have enough. But there's also the opposite kingdom, the kingdom of God, the way of following the Father. And when you value compassion, you will always be generous to others. If you value surface, service, you'll always be grateful. If you value generosity, you'll always have enough. 
If you value esteeming others above yourselves, you'll never feel slighted. If you value loving others, you will know true love. In discussing these two kingdoms, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Joyful Christian, said this. He said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. I like that quote. I like that quote because it's interesting. Because if you aim at making the kingdom of heaven your priority, you know what? You're going to have an amazing time following Jesus. And he's going to lead you into many things. And, you know, you're going to just... On the earth, there's going to be purpose. There's going to be meaning. There's going to be much work to be done. There's going to be things to do. You aim at earth, you don't get either. And so who are you? And what do you want from this world? Because who you are determines what you want. And not vice versa. And so if you understand how deeply you're loved by the Father, and we are, as Christians, we are loved like children. We're filled with the love of God, right? Start with your identity today and work everything out from there. Where are you rooted? In Colossians 2, we read this, Since then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Where does your identity lie? Is your identity in the things of this world or is your identity in Jesus Christ and in what he's done for you? If we could just see how much God loves us sometimes, I think, how, much he, how richly he provides for us in Jesus, then the things of the world that call out for attention, they begin to pale in comparison into knowing how amazing that is. And so Christians, do we know who we are? Do we recognize that we're so loved like children? You see, don't love the things of this world, but live in the lavish love that God the Father has for you. And when we do that, the things of the world start to fade and we're focused more on pleasing Him as we live in the identity that we're loved by God and that He provides for us and that He is good. He's been very, very good to us. Amen? He's been very, very good to us. You see, one path, it seems to suggest in the scripture, leads to ruin, and one path leads to life. And so may we choose the path of Jesus over the ways of the world. Amen? Because it's clear to me that Jesus chose us, um, even at his own cost, even at his own expense. Lord, I just thank you tonight, God, that you love us, Lord, with a love, Lord, that we can't even begin to, to fully comprehend. Thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, for dying for us. Thank you, God, that our sins are forgiven. Thank you, Lord, that you have a hope and a future and things planned for us to be doing even right now. And God, I just pray, Lord, that you'd help us not to find our identity in lesser things, not to help us, not, not to allow us, allow us not to find our identity in the things of the world, but may we find it in you and in you alone. And God, may we remember each and every single day, Lord God, of the blessings and the good things you did for us, Father. May they lead us and direct us in how we live today. And so today, Lord God, help us in each decision to choose you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, church. May we choose Jesus over the ways of the world. Amen? Because it's clear in Scripture, it's clear in our lives that Jesus 
chose us.